All right, guys. Well, let's pray, and uh, we will begin talking about a very, very important subject, okay? Let's pray together. Father, uh, we just come before you today. We're so blessed, and uh, Lord, we're so grateful uh, that we can once again uh, talk about your sacred word and gather around as your people and uh, encourage and edify one another. And forgive us, Lord, uh, for for maybe if we don't have a heart to encourage anyone, uh, forgive us if we don't have a heart to receive from anyone, Lord, because church is very much, Lord, about uh, being built up by one another and fulfilling all of the one another's of scripture. It's how you yourself encourage us. And so, Lord, help us to be uh, both uh, conduits and receptacles of fellowship and, and of the, the ministry that you have ordained for us through one another. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would help us even in talking about this subject right now, that you would help us to understand uh, your word and help us to understand uh, this important subject, Lord, of the canon of scripture. Bless our time, Lord. It's in Christ's holy word or holy name that we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Uh, well, we are talking uh, today about uh, the subject of the canon of scripture, uh, the canon of scripture. And uh, before I do that, you know, I just was struck as I was studying the history of the canon um, and struck by the early church and how much the early church prized the scriptures. It was really uh, just a revelation to me to, to understand that for them, you know, the scriptures, I mean, was that which they were willing to die for. You know, there was, a, there was a, a Roman emperor by the name of Diocletian who said, if you want to destroy Christianity, just destroy their books. You know, uh, understanding that the power and the whole uh, organic nature of the Christian church is connected to the scriptures. And uh, that just tells us something of the power and of the preeminence and the priority that God has placed on his word. Without his word, we have nothing. As we saw in, uh, you know, when we were talking about uh, revelation, special general revelation, but really special revelation, because apart from special revelation, as we studied, you cannot come to know the gospel. You can't come to know Jesus Christ. And so without the scriptures, we are totally lost. And so I thought, you know, uh, should begin uh, to talk today about the importance of knowing your word, knowing the book that is supposed to master your whole life. You know, if this is God's word and this is the book that we base this assembly upon today, you know, then incumbent upon us is to know the book, to study the book, to love the book, to treasure the book, to implement the book, to research the book, Right? And um, what do people do in here for a living? Chris, what do you do? I, uh, Besides pastoring, you got two jobs, so. <laughs> I work at a fuels terminal, so we <clears throat> receive gas and diesel in the pipeline, and put in tanks, put in trucks. Yeah. Stuff like that. Okay. Yep. What else? What else, is, what else do people do in here for work? Jessica, what do you do for work? I run channel operations and global operations for AT&T at Fortnite. Wow. Sounds like, no, that sounds like you're, that sounds like you're smart. Can you 
<laughs> Does that mean you have to read a lot, understand a lot? Do you have to like know code and stuff like that? No. Do you are you programming? I don't do programming. You don't do programming? No. Okay. So what does it entail? Robert's just itching to answer that because he knows all about her job probably. <laughs> but it's not easy, right? I couldn't do it, right? If I sat in your chair at at, at at your house and got on your computer, could I do it? Could I just Yeah. I could do your job? Training, I mean, with training, I can do your job. How long would I have to train to do your job at the level of honest. what you're of the level of what you're doing? A couple of years. A couple of years. Yeah. Wow. Who has a couple years to train to do global? What was it? <laughs> so if you don't get trained, you can't do the job, right? It's the same thing with the Bible. Uh, we cannot, we can't pretend that we are going to profit from Scripture if we are not willing to put in the work. You know, if you're unwilling to open a commentary for yourself, I'm not saying let a pastor do that for you. That's his job. That's my husband's job. But if you're unwilling to open up a commentary for your own sake, to open up a Bible dictionary, to open up a Bible encyclopedia. You know, they have all that. Uh, I have that right here at the click of a button. I have 3,000 books on my phone from my Logos software. I mean, this is incredible. I have a part of that's because I have a large collection of Greek classic literature, about over 1,000 books of Greek classic literature that I don't read. Just like to have it on there sounds kind of, you know, <laughs> like you're smart or something because you have 1,000 books of Greek classic literature. Anyway. But you see, the point is we have to be willing to put in the work so that we have to know something about the, hist the, the history of our book. We have to know something about the canonization process of the Bible. We have to know something about how did we get the Bible? Is the Bible reliable? If you're at work, Jessica, and one of your coworkers asks you, how did you get the Bible? How do you know you can trust that the process they went through to give you the book that's in your hands now is a reliable transmission, preservation of that book. Could you answer those questions? I'm not putting you on the spot. I just, <laughs> you know. But it takes work, right? It takes a lot of work. I remember when I first became a Christian. I worked in a large factory with hundreds of employees, and uh, many of those employees I knew prior to Christ, and uh, they knew me. And so when I became a Christian, they were shocked and surprised and amazed, and Many of them immediately began to challenge my faith. Why are you a Christian? Why did you change on us? Why are you no longer going to the bar with us? Why are you, what's wrong with you? What happened to you? And many of them began to level accusations at the Bible. Uh, I worked with a Satanist who was always constantly undermining the Bible. I worked with a Mormon. I worked with an atheist guy who later on, by God's grace, uh, uh, was led through to Christ through, through me giving him Christian literature. But uh, up front, I couldn't defend the Bible. My first couple of years as a Christian was a year, was time of studying the Bible, researching the Bible, because for the first, especially the first six months to a year, I mean, it was very hard for me to to defend the scriptures. It was more or less, hey, look, I don't know. I just uh, I just know that Christ changed my life, and I'm a Christian now. And and uh, you know, unless you repent, you're going to go to hell. You know what I mean? So uh, you know, you better receive Jesus Christ, and you, you know, as your Lord and Savior. You know. And then where I came from, it was like, well, take them to church on Monday night. Great glory will save them. You know? <laughs> so it's just like, if I could just get them there, I don't have to answer anything. You know? uh, 
But it's not true, right? Because the Bible tells us we're commanded to give an answer for everyone that asks us for the hope that lies within us. Why? Why do you hope in this Bible? Why do you, don't you see what they're saying on A&E? Don't you hear, don't you, don't you watch the History Channel, what they're talking about? They're finding all these Gnostic Gospels and how that, you know, that should have been in the canon and it's not in the canon. So you see the importance of knowing your book. And so for us today, especially in a church like ours, where we take the Word of God serious, we're not... You know, um, uh, Pastor Chris is preaching today. I don't expect him to get up there and start doing a bunch of stories and jokes and, you know what I mean? He's going to go up there and take the Word of God seriously. And so for us, it's the same thing. We have to take the Word of God very, very serious. Uh, uh, and that's why we study things like the canon of Scripture. That's why we study things like uh, systematic theology. And that's why I encourage all of you to have a library at home have a library of resources that you can that you can go to whenever you, you you have a question and you don't have to just depend on oh asking your husband or asking the pastor or uh, let the smart guys figure it out but you can research it especially now with the internet I mean you can do some fine research on the internet just be careful where you go on the internet you know what I mean but you can do some really good uh, uh, biblical studies on the internet. I mean, you have an entire seminary at your fingertips on the internet. You know, the Master Seminary, that's where we were at John MacArthur this weekend. Uh, they have all of their classes online, on video. You can watch the professors teaching those, those courses. Uh, RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, they have all their, their, their seminary courses online. You can listen to some of the best scholars in the world Men like um, John Frame on apologetics. You can listen to men like Michael Kruger, who's probably the best when it comes to the canon right now. You can listen to that guy. And I really recommend him because he makes things very, very, very understandable. So needless to say, I'm, I'm, I'm laying it on heavy today because I was just so impressed, you know, this weekend by, by how much we value the scriptures. You know, the, the Shepherds Conference... You know, 3,500 pastors, we don't get together if we don't have the Bible. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, no, nothing that we're doing there is making any sense unless we have the Word of God. You know, as glorious as uh, singing the hymns together was and just as triumphant as the symphony that MacArthur has, all that stuff is great, but we don't have the Word of God. All we have is just a religious gathering, a religious mm -hmm. clique or some kind of religious, you know, uh, community or something. But uh, the Word of God makes all the difference in the world. So, with that, let me talk about um, this word, canon. Does anybody know what the word canon means? The word canon. The word canon just basically means standard. Standard. Okay? Or you could also find this definition for it. Either a standard or a rule. In the ancient world, it was used even prior to the Greek New Testament. Even the Hebrews would use it for uh, a measuring tool, like a plumb line, a rule. And that's why they would call the Bible the rule of faith. If you do any search of uh, church history in the apostolic age, and then after that, uh, they had this phrase called the rule of faith and that was before they started using the word the actual Greek word canon canon they would use this word rule of faith for sort of a 
to imply that there was a measurement, there was a standard. Uh, can somebody get me some damp towels so I can wipe this, keep wiping this off while I'm going? Thank you. Um, and that's what it was. And uh, it was known, first of all, it was known uh, in the second century all the way up to the third and fourth century. It was known as the canon of the church. It was known as the canon of truth. It was known as the canon of faith before it was actually called the canon of scripture. And that was first, uh, that phrase first was used in that way. Thank you very much. It was first used in that way by Athanasius. Do all of you know who Athanasius is? Athanasius, a very important, um, uh, Athanasius is a very important figure in church history. Um, let me write his name up here. Athanasius. Athanasius. So here you're talking about the 4th uh, century A.D., okay? 4th. Fourth. 4th century A.D., Athanasius was the, um, the bishop of Alexandria, bishop of Hippo, and he um, was very uh, instrumental at the Council of Nicaea. How many of you have heard of the Council of Nicaea? Okay, what happened at the Council of Nicaea? Does anybody want to tell us what happened at the Council of Nicaea? They didn't make up the Trinity. <laughs> very good. That's right. They didn't invent the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea. That's right. What else did they, did they not invent? The canon. The canon. That's right. And, and, and people will tell you that when you talk to them. For some reason, they just, uh, they've been watching too much A&E or something. But um, they will tell you, oh, it was at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. that they decided which books of the Bible uh, were in. It was kind of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know it, was, it was left to a, a group of scholars and they decided, well, this one is inspired and that one's not inspired. So they made a decision which books of the Bible were considered the rule of faith, the canon. That is absolutely wrong, by the way. That's false. Whenever you hear somebody tell you that, that is false information. The Council of Nicaea, in 325, 325, that's a very important date. That was not concerning the canon of Scripture. It was surrounding the doctrine of Christ. Christ, Christology, as a matter of fact, right? And Athanasius was debating a villain, uh, let's see, by the name of Arius. He was a... Um, he was an old-school Jehovah Witness, we could say. <laughs> Arius denied the deity of Christ and claimed that Jesus was a creature. He was a created being. So he denied that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, that he himself was divine, that he was God. And this is what Nicaea was all about. It was about Athanasius refuting Arius, and he did in fact refute him at the Council of Nicaea, and uh, Arius was condemned as a heretic condemned as a heretic, but nevertheless, Arius continued to have major influence in the Roman Empire because of his friendship with Constantine. So uh, the, the canon was not therefore decided at the Council of Nicaea, but Athanasius, even prior to that, is talking about the canon of scripture, the canon of scripture. And it was right around the time of Athanasius's day where you begin to see lists of let's say the New Testament canon, where they list all 27 books of the New Testament and that the church identified these books 
These, th this is what we accept as a the Christian community. This is what we accept as the inspired books of the Bible. We will get to some more specifics on all of that, but let me just point out to you that, you know, when we talk about the canon of Scripture, obviously, we're talking about the, the, the view that God's people have towards the Word of God. And let me tell you that from the very beginning, uh, God's people have always had the most sacred view of the Word of God. They had the highest. You hear that today. You've got to have a high view of Scripture. Well, the Old, the, the Old Testament people, the Jews, definitely had a very high view of Scripture. Let me just relay one tradition. And this goes back to uh, the rabbinic tradition known as the Talmud. The Talmud, okay? The Talmud. The Talmud is a collection of uh, rabbinic writings uh, that were uh, that were written in the intertestamental period, okay, and that describe uh, Jewish uh, interpretation and tradition on various texts of the Old Testament. Well, in the Talmud, they also talk about the fact that the that that a person who handled the Word of God then became defiled. I'll explain. A person who handled the word of God, their hands became defiled. But they spoke that in irony. They're saying almost in an ironic fashion, they're saying that because of the holiness of God, your hands, after handling the word of God, that you became stained by the sacredness of the word of God. And they use this sort of spin on words of defiling of the hands. There's actually a tradition that uses that exact phrase. Other traditions use the phrase that it made their hands unclean. Don't ask me why they decided to speak in opposites, you know, to point a truth. But that is the way they saw it. They saw that God's word was so holy, you were contaminated after you touched the word of God. And do we have such a holy view of the word of God that we feel like we have been contaminated by the sacred after handling the Word of God. Uh, too many people today don't have a high view like that. But maybe that will account why in the Bible they had such a high premium or put such a high premium on Scripture. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 31. Let me just give you some, some texts, okay? Uh, so that prior to the New Testament, they went to great lengths to protect the Word of God in the people of God. Deuteronomy 31, 24, for example, the word of God was to be kept close to the temple near the Ark of the Covenant. It says, it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God that it may remain there as a witness against you. And so there, giving the word of God the highest, most preeminent spot in the house of the Lord, right next to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you've heard it said that Muslims try to do a similar thing with the Quran. Do you know this? Muslims have a tradition that the Quran, when you walk into a Muslim home, the Quran has to be placed at the highest spot of the house. Some of these houses around here, I mean, wow, it'd be like 30 feet up. I mean, some of these ceilings, have you seen some of the, I mean, how would they do it? They have to build like a little, 
you know, some kind of soffit up there or something, you know what I mean? But uh, they do that to honor the Quran, okay? And uh, which is sad because no matter how high they could, they could send the Quran to the moon, it's still not God's word, you know what I mean? Um, but it comes, I believe it comes from texts like this. Giving the word of God physical priority is a Jewish tradition. Many, many Muslim traditions come from Jewish traditions. That's just the way, that's, that's just a fact. Um, praying towards Jerusalem. Where did they get the idea to pray towards Mecca? I think it came from the concept of praying towards Jerusalem. <clears throat> 2 Kings 22, verse 8. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Zaphon, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Zaphon, who read it. Also, uh, back to Deuteronomy. I'm sorry if you're jumping back and forth, but I'm just trying to point out the priority, the place, the reverence, and the respect that they gave the word of God. Uh, kings as well were also to set a standard uh, for the people by honoring the word of God. It says in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, Now it shall come about when he, that is the king, when he sits on his throne, he will write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he will read it all the days of his life what he may learn to fear, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. Think about the king was to be there and in his, in his throne, he was, as he was presiding over the nation, he, used to, he would have to have a, the word of God there and he would have to make a copy of it. He would have to write it down himself to make a copy of it so that he could read it all the days of his life. Also, uh, the command that God gave Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, he says, This book of the law will not depart from your mouth, but you will meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your ways prosperous, and then you will have success. Think about that. What, 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 is that, what verse does that remind you of? You will meditate on it day and night. Psalm. Psalm. I was going to say, just the book of Psalms is a big book. <laughs> want to be more specific. Uh, Psalm 1. The blessed man is blessed because he meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. The king was to be that blessed man. He was to be saturated with the word of God. Ozzy, I see that hand. Dopes. Okay. Um, very well. Let's move on here. The word of God. Just trying to stress the purity of the word of God and the high place that it put on it. Um, at the close of the Old Testament, the Jews believed that after the latter prophets, the canon was closed. Uh, let me read to you what Grudem says. He says, approximately in 435 B.C., there were no further additions to the Old Testament canon. The subsequent history of the Jewish people was recorded in other writings, such as the books of Maccabees. But these writings were not thought 
to be worthy to be included with a collection of God's words from earlier times. Uh, there is a rabbinic tradition that um, Geisler quotes uh, going, <clears throat> going back to this period of time when they said that after the latter prophets, after Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, after these prophets, the Holy Spirit ceased out of Israel, which is a way of saying he stopped talking he stopped revealing. There were no more books coming. And so they had this idea that, um, that uh, the Old Testament was closed. And you do have a few different lines of argument that you can actually use for this. But uh, you have the historical uh, with Josephus. Josephus, a Jewish historian um, of... What century was he writing? First century. Uh, and then you have rabbinic. Rabbinic. The rabbinic history. And then you have another group of people. You have Qumran, or people call the, the Essenes. The Essenes. This group of people here, they were sort of a messianic group. They believed Messiah was coming, but... They, and this is uh, this was kind of contemporary to the first century as well. You've heard of the Qumran caves. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Qumran in uh, 1948. Little shepherd boys out there walking around throwing rocks and stones at the hills. He throws a stone into a cave and hears a big pop. And he climbs up there and he finds several jars containing ancient scrolls that predated the time of Christ about two, three hundred years almost an entire scroll of the book of Isaiah and um, many other scrolls. This was part of the Essene community. The Essenes also believed that after the writing of the latter prophets, revelation ceased out of Israel. Um, let me just encourage you guys with something, okay? I know that we're not evidentialists. <clears throat> we're good presuppositionalists, right? Um, I mentioned uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. And, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are predated before the time of Christ. What did I say? Let's say 200 to 300 BC. Right? Now, before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948, what was the oldest, the oldest copy that we had of the Old Testament? Anybody know? Like what, three or four hundred, something like that? Eighty. It was known as the Masoretic Text. It was named after Maseratis, who found it, and it is. It was. Dis, it was discovered in one thousand, right around one thousand A.D. or nine hundred. Okay. Circa, you know, around around that period of time. Okay. I have an issue here. <laughs> Okay, the, the, the earliest copy that we have of an Old Testament book dates to 900 A.D. after Christ. Now, that's a long time before we get to the original, right, or the original time. But then we find the Dead Sea Scrolls that predates all of this by a thousand years, okay? And so now we're able to compare the Dead Sea Scroll with the Masoretic text of the book of Isaiah to compare what has changed over a thousand years of transmission? What has changed? 
And scholars, according to some scholars like Geisler, there is over a 98% accuracy rate. And most of the percentages that are left are due to simple grammatical errors, spelling errors, reduplication of words. Uh, they have all these textual criticism categories for how the scribes would make errors in the text. But it can be accounted for, but there you have a thousand years of copying the Bible, and then you, 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 you compare these manuscripts and they're almost identical. Nothing has changed. Certainly nothing in terms of the meaning, the doctrine, the essential message, none of that has changed in over a thousand years. So when you hear people tell you, oh, come on, give me a break, the Bible, you know how many times have been translated? Yeah, thousands of times. And they look at you like, what? That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, how can you trust a book that's been translated hundreds of times or thousands of times or whatever it is? I said, well, because, you know, we have the Greek manuscripts, we have the Hebrew manuscripts. We have almost 25,000 manuscripts of the whole Bible, Greek and Hebrew. Almost 6,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament alone. And when you do a comparison of some of these bigger texts, what you find is just incredible. It's just uh, striking, right? But uh, that presupposes that you have a worldview with which you can interpret facts like this. So let's talk about that. But anyway, <laughs> let's move on. Um, there's so much here. Let me see what else I can get to. Um, so, <clears throat> different lines of evidence. You had Josephus, you had rabbinic writings, you had the, the Essenes or the Qumran that time. They all unanimously agreed that the intertestamental period never, uh, the writings of the intertestamental period, so there I'm talking about um, what writings? The intertestamental period is what was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that 400 or so year period of time where things were written, specifically the Apocrypha. How many of you have heard of the Apocrypha? Okay, the Apocrypha is an interesting collection of books, right? And when you do a study of the Apocrypha, what you find is that from very early, the Christian church has been adding the Apocrypha to its Bibles. For example, in 400, um, Jerome, Jerome, and if you can read that, you get high points in here. Um, Jerome wrote his translation of the Bible into the Latin, what's known as the, the Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate. Now, if you, picked up, if you picked up a copy of the Vulgate, it would have the Apocrypha with it. It would have the books. How many books in the Apocrypha? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. What, 13 books or something like that? So you're talking OT, Tanuti, and the Apocrypha is written about this period of time. Um, and as early as 400 A.D., you have such eminent theologians as Jerome adding it to his translation of the Bible. So if you went down to Lifeway at 400 AD and you went and looking for a, a New American Standard or an ESV or something like that, they would have the Vulgate with the Apocrypha. Now Jerome was very careful to point out that <clears throat> he did not consider that those books were inspired, that they were simply there for historical 
uh, benefit. That's it. Uh, and throughout the history of the church, that is exactly the way that people saw it. The Jews understood that the Apocrypha, which documented the, the, the history of Israel, the revolt of the Maccabean period, they understood that uh, the, uh, uh, the Apocrypha also was not inspired. It was not on par with the inspired books, the accepted books of the canon or the rule of faith or the canon of faith. Um, so is it like the Book of Maps to them? What's that? It's like the Book of Maps to them? Book of Maps. Yes. I don't know what that is. The maps in the back here. Oh, oh, maps. Oh, you got me. Yeah, it was just there for historical aid. Uh, but the Apocrypha has some problems, too. The Apocrypha actually has historical errors. It has theological errors. Dates are wrong. Uh, so it's obviously, it is obvious that it does not bear the marks of, of, of uh, you know, uh, authenticity. authenticity and inspiration. It doesn't have that. Um, and the Jews never considered that part of that. Uh, now, just to touch on that comment that you made, since it has these types of errors, theological errors, what historical benefit can come from sources that have such errors? Well, I think it would be uh, just understanding the history of the Jewish people, what led to the Maccabean revolt, what led to the oppression of the Roman Empire, things like that. Yeah, I mean, those were those are mainly the the reasons. Traditions. Uh, the other thing too is that there is, they they do serve for literary reasons to show us maybe how in antiquity certain phrases were used, certain grammatical constructions were used back in the ancient world. That does shed some light on the literary milieu or the literary context of that day. Things like that. Uh, in 1547, however, at the Council of Trent. The, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, added, added the Apocrypha to its Bible officially as part of the inspired Word of God. And, um, and they, you've got to be careful with Catholics because what they'll say is, oh, no, 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 we simply affirmed what was already happening. You see, you'll find the presence of the, of the Apocrypha way back. You go all the way back to Jerome. You already see the Apocrypha added to the books of the Bible, added to people's canons, added to people's lists of biblical books. But they don't tell you that most of those additions were qualified by those that did that. I mean, today you'll, you'll, you'll actually find people like... Um, have you guys heard of the Net Bible? The N-E-T is the translation mainly led up by Daniel Wallace. Uh, they put out an edition with the Apocrypha for similar reasons, which I don't like that, but anyway. I mean, it's just something. Um, any questions on that before I move on to the last point? I'll just say, like, yes, sir? on the Old Testament canon, I like the fact that as you read the New Testament, you never hear Jesus debating with any of the Jews about what is in the canon and what isn't. You know, it was fully settled to where there was never a question about what was the Word of God and what wasn't. Excellent point. <clears throat> Excellent point. <clears throat> what, what's the Catholic argument for including them? If it does contain theological and historical errors that would suggest it's not divinely inspired. I mean, they, do they argue it is divinely inspired, number one, and then what's the argument? Yeah, yeah they, they would argue that they are inspired books. And... It helps them with their doctrine. 
mean, really, it's what it does. Maccabees teaches soul sleep, for example, so they use that as a premise for purgatory. That'd be one argument that I can think of. Anybody else could want to speak to that, Jason? Not necessarily on that, but <clears throat> let's say with uh, the Council of Nicaea. Yes, sir. You know, do you think, let's say, speaking about how many gathered, uh, approximately 300 bishops, would add any, any more weight so you didn't just have one ecclesiastical body, but you have a variety of different bishops gathering to address these issues, and then which each ongoing council just adds more clarity to specific doctrinal positions at that time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's really good. It's a it's a healthy ecumenism, you know what I mean? Sure. Because a healthy yeah, one. a healthy one, you know what I mean? Because yeah, you have people from different traditions coming there to defend the essentials of the Christian faith. I will join. I will join our. You know, I will link arms with my Lutheran, you know, brothers and my, you know, my Presbyterian brothers and my, you know, Wesleyan brothers and you know anybody else that wants to defend the essentials of the Christian faith. You know, and, and, and these bishops and these scholars at Nicaea, they're ready to die together over the doctrine of Christ. Many of them had been persecuted. Some of them had been maimed, missing limbs, walking into the Council of Nicaea, having been persecuted for the doctrine of Christ and his deity. That's how much it cost them to believe in the deity of Christ. You know, yes, sir. Because Rome and the Pope is looked at as the representative of Christ on earth, do you think the the um, practice of adding the Apocrypha to Scripture and considering it as such uh, benefits that argument of them being the Vicar of Christ here uh, representing the Catholic Church? Well, yeah, I mean, it either it's pretty determinative of whether or not you believe in, you know, the Pope's power to speak sure. ex cathedra, you know what I mean, because you'd have to go along with the authority of the church, you know what I mean? So, in a sense, I guess it would, you know what I mean? But that, that, that goes to another point. It's like, does the church have the power to say which books they're going to add to the Bible? <laughs> you know what I mean? And we would say, no, absolutely not. So it's a difference between, you know, when I was studying the canon a long time ago, it was a difference between... Two D words, that the church decide which books go into the canon, or did the church discover which books went into the canon? Big difference. I think they discovered the books, and discovered, I mean, they discovered which books bore the marks of authenticity. You know what I mean? Which, which books bore the marks of authenticity, and which ones obviously were either forgeries like the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, things like that, which ones were either uh, came too late, later, uh, which ones had heretical doctrine, which ones contradicted earlier revelation, that's very big. You know what I mean? All of those things. Which ones were written by apostles, which ones were authorized by apostles. That's why the book of Hebrews, for example, it took a long time to accept the book of Hebrews into the Bible because they didn't know who the author was. And so they thought, okay, this book obviously has the marks of inspiration and the authority with which it speaks, and it obviously, you know, adheres to apostolic theology. But we don't know who the author is, and so they, they were they were slow to they were slow to accept it. And I'm talking here of the global church, the universal church, to give it universal attestation. You know, uh, so yeah, it's a lengthy process. I mean, the, the whole canon canonization process is a very lengthy one. F.F. F. Bruce has written a great book on the canon of Scripture. Yes, sir. Um, I have my own response. I was curious how you might respond if someone says, 
Whatever came first, be it the scriptures of the church, determines the standard. Well, I would just say... I went very often. <laughs> yeah. Determines the standard? Yeah, by which we make any particular doctrine. What is the ultimate authority? They would, Rome would say because they came first, they are the ultimate authority. Well, whatever methodology you decide to adopt, it better adhere to what Scripture teaches. So I would say the pattern, the example that you find in Scripture is definitely not that the church decides, but that the Scripture, for, for example, apostolic preaching was subject to the scrutiny of Scripture so that any layman can take up the scriptures in Berea and examine to see whether the apostles' teaching was correct. So I would say as whatever you decide on, if it contradicts the pattern of scripture, you have your answer. So that's how I would answer that. So that's how you say in the scripture is. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Sola Scriptura. Yeah. Not sola ecclesia. Right? <coughs> um, anything else? Anybody else? Any any mysteries in your mind that you want to clarify or that any questions? Yes, sir. One more I was going to say. Yeah. Do you um, like you obviously would know Daniel Wallace is um, helpful in writing articles pertinent to textual criticism. Can you recommend any others if we wanted to know more of how to give an yeah. answer? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kruger, I actually did a blog on our church. That's an R. I actually did a blog on our church where I posted uh, some audio, maybe video. Do you remember? Was it video or audio? Or, it's got video. Or, okay. Uh, but I think Kruger's the best. Here's why. I mean, today there's other scholars. I mean, you can read um, Bruce Metzger. It's just a tedious, tedious, and it's the highest level of scholarship. It's a $140 book, you know, from uh, uh, Cambridge on the canon. But, I mean, really? Who's going to go out and buy a... 200-page book for $150. Okay, so that's the level of scholarship you can go to. But Michael Kruger makes it so accessible, he just speaks our language. You know what I mean? He doesn't speak over our head. He makes it so plain and clear. These whole issues of the canon, just wonderful. So I would say look for our article on the, uh, the, the church website. Grab this by Kruger, the canon. What's the name of the, of the title? The canon? Or the canon revisited or something like that? Okay, the book is, yeah, The Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. Mm -hmm. That's right. Get on Amazon. Get the credit card out. Don't hesitate. Yeah. How do we carefully explain, you said two terms, decide or discover, when I heard you give the explanation for the book of Hebrews. Right. It sounds like it can fall into decided. So, how can we carefully make that argument of Scripture was inspired, it was, it's, it's the Word of God, and it wasn't chosen by men on what books to be in there? <clears throat> because there is not a single council and there is not a single person who sat down to take the minutes of the meeting where the, the decision was made to say the book of Hebrews is now officially Christian canon. It didn't happen in an official way that way. Got it. it happened through the process, the, the historical process. It happened through just the, uh, the universal acceptance of the letter over time. 
And I think that's good. You know why I think that's good is because it shows that Christians were thinking critically and were trying to be very slow and no one was speaking ex cathedra and no one was just getting up and deciding for the whole church this is what it's going to be. You know what I mean? But it's just, as with the Jewish people, the book slowly took shape. Slowly took shape. You know what I mean? So... I just want to clarify. Jewish canon's the same thing. Some of the books were slower to be accepted worldwide, if you would, universally by the Jewish community as inspired and part of the canon. So, we're out of time. Any last questions? Any last things? I think at the end of the day, like, I know, like, even in Grudem's, like, I listen to his audio <coughs> book, and, you know, he goes through all the arguments for canon, and at the very end, he says, at the end of the day, we're, we feel good about the canon because of the faithfulness of God, like, God would want his people to have his word. Mm. And so at this point, we shouldn't be wondering, like, if God has given us his word. Right. You know what I mean? We trust God that he's provided for his church the word of God, and we know what it is. Yeah. You know? Amen. Yes, sir? Let's just come add one more thing. I mean, when Christ was on the earth, he's speaking to his people, and he constantly reminds them or says to them, have you not heard? So he's reflecting on what was said, what was written over and over and over, speaking really to the validity of, of what was said before. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, I didn't even really get to this, but there's a whole, there's a whole element of Jesus and his impact on the canon, the way he interpreted the word of God, the way that he superseded the word of God above the traditions of man. He impacted the canon, you know, in a in a in a, in a major way, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, and ultimately he put himself as the fulfillment of the canon. I mean, he's the fulfillment of everything that the Word of God talks about. So Jesus obviously made a huge impact on the canon of Scripture. All right, well, we better pray so we can get going now to worship. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you again, Lord, for your Word. And Lord, as much as is possible with us, Lord, help us, Lord, uh, change us, transform us into those people that would virtually, we would give our life to have the word of God. Lord, that we would have such a devotion and such a courage and such an allegiance to scripture, God, above everything else, above any denomination or any preacher or teacher or theologian, but that our commitment would first and foremost be to your word. And Father, we thank you, Lord. We're not scholars, Lord. Um, we're not the smartest people in the whole world, Lord. Um, but you have chosen to make your word accessible to even a little boy, a little girl. Can pick up your word and have the word of God in their possession and understand the simplicity of the message and yet at the same time possess the profundity of the message. And so, Lord, we're grateful that you have made it accessible, that you've chosen to reveal these things to babes. Lord, um, all by your sovereign grace, we thank you for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.